These are words from Psalm 85. Restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation towards us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Let me hear when God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints. But let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. I have the unenviable position of telling you this morning that our, the beginning of Daniel series has been delayed till next week. Paul has asked me to preach on this the long weekend. And so I've simply chosen a text that I happened to be reading through at the time that I was asked to preach, and it is from Psalm 85, verse 6. that says, Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? This is a verse that I wish to expound because I believe it's a prayer that brings us to something very basic and vital in the life of every Christian. Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? There's something in this prayer, and it is a prayer, a prayer offered to God that gets right to the core very quickly of why you and I were made and what God most delights in. Will you not revive us, O Lord, that your people may rejoice in you? As we've begun a series on the book of Daniel, and last week we were reminded and given a new word, Babylonianness, the Babylonianness of our culture, that is a place where Life is lived not merely without reference to God, but with a desire to replace God, to tear him down from the heavens and replace him with an object of our own creation. I believe this verse is very relevant as it speaks to the very practical issue of answering the question, what resources do I have to persevere in this world as a Christian? And so it's a back-to-basics week. And choosing this subject, I, I don't wish to be contentious. I wish to be simple. My main point is simply this, that God's people depend continually upon God's gracious enabling. And there is a plea, a desire for God's graciousness in this prayer. Will you not revive us, O Lord, that your people may rejoice in you? This is what I want you to get this morning, if you don't get anything else. That we depend continually upon God's gracious enabling to rejoice in God. And this is what sustains us in all things. When I mention the word revival, a lot of things might come into your mind. A lot of history, a lot of, a lot of experiences, a lot of notions. But I wonder if you've ever connected these two words together, 
that I want to connect this morning from Psalm 85, verse 6. Those two words are revival and rejoicing. And I want you to see that those two words, revival and rejoicing, are inseparable and that they are necessary. This is a working definition of revival. It's not the definition of revival. You may disagree with it, but it is a working definition of revival for this morning based on this verse. Revival is the gracious improvement of the human heart to grasp and experience all that God purposes to reveal to us through the worship that he ordains. And I mentioned the word worship there, God's ordained worship, because this is a psalm that we're talking about. This is part of the the, the temple liturgy. This is the things that were brought into the temple to sing and to pray to God. Will you not revive us again, O Lord? That your people may rejoice in you. Not not just rejoice. Some people ask the Lord, "Would you would you help me to rejoice?" But rejoice in you, which is you know they say prepositions make all the difference, right? And what is asked for here, the revival that is described, it's not in a vacuum of the knowledge of God. Rather, it's when the knowledge of God becomes transforming. And for me personally, I don't know where else to begin to seek to live the Christian life except to ask God for this very thing continually. Continually. I'm not advocating the pursuit of Christian experience above all, but I am saying that the pursuit of God above all is a profoundly experiential thing without which the Christian life can hardly be lived. Revival is when God graciously sees fit to take the knowledge of himself and give it a power that is otherwise unexplainable, to rejoice in him. If we would live in this world with the power to transcend, transcend the power that this world has to seduce us and to kill us spiritually, then we will fail if we think that this is merely a matter of informing the mind better or coercing the will more. And all of us have experienced those kinds of religion that that seek only to inform the mind or seek only to coerce the will, but neglect the transformation of the heart. The heart must be captured. Jonathan Edwards, uh, 18th century pastor and very familiar with the subject of revival said this no light in our understanding is of any use to us if it does not affect our heart and no purpose of our will bears any proper fruit except it flow from our heart this is the grace of God to revive us and to rejoice in him I don't believe it's a different experience than what Jesus promised to us in John chapter 7 when he says, call on me, believe in me, and and rivers of living water will flow within you. 
For years and years in my own Christian life and experience, Psalm 1 has meant so very much to me where it says you'll be like a tree planted by streams of living water bearing fruit in its season. Won't you revive us, O Lord, that your people may rejoice in you. Note that revival is not, that it is rather, it is a divine improvement of the human condition. Do you know what I mean by that? I, I don't want to use a vocabulary that's foreign to you, but you ever feel like the sense that when you come to worship that my heart needs improvement in, in the sense that it needs to be make new, made new. I need to ask like the psalmist says, Lord, create in me something that affects my heart. It's a divine improvement of the human condition, but it is not an improvement of God. It is not an improvement of the worship that he ordains. God never needs improving. He never needs revival. His worship never needs innovation. But our hearts need miraculous intervention to change us to experience God through the worship that he ordains. And so, first simple point, that revival and rejoicing are inseparable. There's no way to truly rejoice in the Lord if if God doesn't graciously improve the condition of our heart. And there's no proper evidence of revival except the heart be made to rejoice. Revival and rejoicing are inseparable. If there's anything that we do together in worship to God in which we do not expect and pray for God to use it as a means of reviving us, then why do we do it? We should stop doing it right now. In other words, revival shouldn't be sought as something extraneous or something superfluous or extra. to how we regularly worship, but rather in all the things that we do regularly, everything that we do all the time, we should do them because of this very thing, that it is the thing that we are expecting God to use as a means to revive and renew us in our hearts. That's why we do what we do. Why else would we do it? Let me point out the most obvious thing about my text. It's an Old Testament text. You know that the word revival actually does not appear in the New Testament. It's an Old Testament text, and it has to do with the, with the worship of the temple. And the people had the temple. It's in that system. It's in that context that these temple worshipers prayed, Revive us, O Lord, that your people might rejoice in you. And they had the temple as God's ordained means of worship. And if they despised it, And if they were not affected by it, it was not a reflection on the temple, that the temple was somehow deficient, that the temple worship somehow needed improvement. Rather, it was a reflection of their heart. The temple was ordained by God as a means by which his people would rejoice in him. God is not a poor architect of worship. 
His designs are not flawed. It told them their story of redemption. Every time they came to the temple, this is what it did for them. It it told them their story of redemption. It magnified to them the love of God. It showed them, yes, the severity of God, but also the covenant faithfulness of God. David himself longed for the temple. He was jealous for the sparrows that got to live in the temple. And he was mindful when he was not in Jerusalem exactly what was going on every single morning and every single evening. What a fascinating study. Take your concordance sometime and and look up the word rejoice. I'm going to read a few references. All of these are from a book that you might not expect it to be from. The book of Deuteronomy chapter 12. And it's, it's it's a sermon by Moses where Moses picks up the law and he preaches through it. And he makes sure that the people understand the proper purposes of the law which they are handling. And so this is, this is chapter 12, verse 3. Speaking of the temple, he says, You shall go there, and there you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices and your tithes and your contribution that you present, your vow offerings, your free will offerings, and the firstborn of your herd and your flock. And there you shall eat before me, the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice, you and your households, in all that you undertake, in which the Lord God has blessed you. Verse 12. Verse 11, rather. In that place, the Lord God will choose to make his name dwell there. There you will bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contributions that you present and all your finest offerings that you vow to the Lord and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God. You and your sons and your daughters and your servants. Verse 18. In the place that the Lord God gave you the place that the Lord, he will choose, you and your sons and your daughters, your male servant, your female servant, and the Levite who is within your towns. You shall come and you shall rejoice before the Lord God. The Old Testament sacrifices and offerings were not merely rituals to appease God. Do you ever feel like you come to church to fulfill a ritual to appease God. All of the sacrifices were given, were ordained by God to sustain them in rejoicing in God. When they either neglected worship or observed it as a ritualistic way, God was displeased. How much so more so for us today? When we have Christ who is the embodiment and the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament anticipated. For example, this meal that we eat today. I was blessed this week. I was in a prayer meeting and lo and behold, I mean, this is in the middle of the week. Sunday's still a a long ways away. I wonder how many of you have even thought about today, the Lord's Day, we will eat together. And someone prayed for the Lord's table that it would be a blessing to us. This is like four days in advance. I was so encouraged. Wow. We'll eat today. The Lord's table is a feast of the knowledge of God. That's what God ordains, ordains it to be. 
Come to it with expectation that God will use it to renew your heart. Whatever deadness is in your heart today, whatever kind of famine there may be of the knowledge of God, the Lord's table is a banquet spread for exactly such a need. Do you need to hear of the love of God, of the faithfulness of God, the justice of God, the mercy of God, the wrath of God? It is all here in the revelation of Jesus as our Savior, given to us for the forgiveness of sins. I hope you see what I'm saying. This, this prayer in the Psalms, revive us again. Revive your people, Lord, that they might rejoice in you. It, it's, it's not a prayer for something new. Rather, it's a prayer that something very old would make them new. And God has ordained ways that we find paths to him and to rejoice him. And if we lack the capacity to rejoice... It's not because of an imperfection in how God has called us to worship. Rather, it's an imperfection in our hearts. And so God's people cry out to him, revive us, O Lord. Renew us again that your people may rejoice in you. You probably know this, that we at the church have a very clear and not so hidden agenda each week for every person who comes. Whether we're singing or reading the scriptures or eating like this or baptizing or praying, that these things would be used to fulfill the purpose for which God has ordained them. The ways in which he says, look to me, to renew us in him, to bring us to rejoicing again. They are inseparable. They are also a Christian necessity. In this prayer, we have a display of the dynamic, a necessary dynamic between God and his people. Something that is basic to living the Christian life and persevering as a Christian. It is a prayer asking God to give to his people the very thing that God requires. I wonder if you're comfortable with that. of grasping the necessity of possessing something, but yet asking God that he would give you that. Which is to rejoice. See, there's a presupposition built right into the text, right into the prayer. It's, that, it's this, I've, I've said it before, I'll say it again, that there should be something experiential about our religion not with experience as the highest aim, but with the expectation that when God is our highest aim, it will be experiential in a way that transforms us. It's not merely an, an exercise of the intellect. It's not merely a manipulation of the will. It is unashamedly an experience of the heart. I have a man who taught me as a young man many years ago this little image that he put in my head, and I've never, ever forgotten it. He says the Christian life is, can be compared to, 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 to a, a train and, and there's experience in the Christian life but make sure that the experience is never the engine. Truth is the engine. Truth is what leads everything. 
And where there's truth leading, experience will follow. And if you put experience at the front of the train, you're headed for a train wreck. I've never forgotten that. God wants us to rejoice in the knowledge of Him. It isn't something that originates within us. Most religions of the world will tell you to look inside. Just find some way to get inside of yourself and and you'll find it. It's something that originates outside of us in an objective knowledge of our Savior, Jesus, who is revealed to us in the Scriptures. But it most certainly also goes within us and transforms us by the power of God's Spirit. My interest in this subject runs deep and personal. I've known many seasons of the soul. And as a Christian, it concerns me to know, how can I be sustained in my Christian faith and walk? I wonder, how is it that I will finish well? How is it that the grace of God will keep me safe from the world and from the devil and from my own propensity to spiritual deadness and hypocrisy? You know, all the things that you saw when you were young and you thought, why did they do that? And then when you get old, you think, boy, am I doing that? There's a reality here that is a necessary game changer for the Christian church. Ever enjoy the landscape under the moonlight? A landscape looks entirely different in moonlight from sunlight, and so does the Christian landscape of believing, of obeying, of submitting, of repenting. It changes completely when God grants the grace of hearts that are improved to experience rejoicing in Him. Our feet find godly paths easier. Our tongues find gracious words more quickly. Our mind finds edifying thoughts. Our mourning and our sadness better finds its healing. Our fellowship becomes sweeter. Our worship becomes desirable. When the things that we rejoice in are transferred from the created things to the Creator. I hope you know what I'm talking about this morning. When God's people don't rejoice, when God's people lack this grace of renewal, everything becomes a lot harder. You've probably experienced this just as I have. The things that we know we should do, pray and read our Bible, becomes a duty when it should be a privilege. People discuss godly living with a with a defensive air about it of, of how, how much do I have to give up. We talk about love and unity in the midst of all of our differences, but it is elusive instead of natural. Rejoicing in God as a result of the gracious work of God changes everything. Now, I'm not trying to create a glossy picture, an idealistic picture of perfection. I also, I fall into duty. I fall into worldly thinking. I fall into grumpiness all the time. 
But that's why I need worship. That's why I need prayers like this. That's why I need God's people. It's why I need the psalmist to give me the vocabulary of how to speak to God. Won't you revive your people that they may rejoice in you? In conclusion, I want to leave this thought with you that God is good and can be trusted. He can be trusted to give his children all that they need. See, there's a basic question raised in the text. Will God give his people what they need? What is God like? Can God be trusted? Are there deficiency in God's character or in his power that would make such a dependency a risky thing? Because as people, we instinctively resist dependency. Self-sufficiency is the ground we're most comfortable on. And this is a prayer that acknowledges that what will sustain us is something that we are entirely dependent upon God to give us. But the question is, will he give it? See, the dependency that we have upon God is written right into the New Covenant when Jeremiah says, I will write my law on their hearts. I will put my spirit into them. I'm not trying to set the bar high, so high for Christian life to discourage you. Rather, I'm trying to cast a vision of just how great and how gracious God is. This is what God does. When Peter said at Pentecost, turn to God, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. He's simply speaking, this is what God does. When you turn to him, when you call upon him, he sends time of refreshing. How? Three simple points. How? How do I do this? Number one, ask God. Develop the discipline to explicitly ask God for renewal in your heart. Do you ever ask God for that? Secondly, Orientate your life Godwards. Orientate your life towards him. Examine your life. Is there anything that, that orientates your life unnecessarily earthward? <laughs> it's hard to ski downhill with your tips pointing up. Orientate your life towards him. Show some integrity with your prayers. And finally, renounce any religion that does not have the pursuit of God as the greatest aim. It's a great irony of religion. It can be the most deadening thing of the soul because we think that by performing it, we've done what is necessary. Rejoicing will be our eternal vocation. But what is given to us in heaven will simply be the perfection of what has already been given to us in Christ. A.W. Tozer says, anyone who's bored with worship is not prepared for heaven. <laughs> and so let's prepare. It's our eternal, heaven will not be a dismal place. It will be a place of rejoicing. 
And so the Apostle Paul says, rejoice always. Let's pray. Lord, help us, I pray, as your people. Grant us your grace, the improvement of our hearts. More than anything else, I pray, you lead us to trust you, place ourselves entirely in your hands. For Jesus' sake, I pray.